Father, we thank you for this morning as we uh, come to uh, just reorient our hearts and our minds and our desires towards you um, as we anticipate the gathering here in a little while. Um, Lord, we, we also just uh, ask, uh, just want to recognize what you've done during the week and just the opportunities you've given. Thank you for, um, thank you for the opportunity that Emily had with the supervisor, and I pray that this fellow would come and that he would see a difference, that um, you, Jesus, said, I, um, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and uh, you have exclusive claims for yourself. Um, and so I just pray that you would please um, bring him and that we would love on him and uh, pray that he would see the truth. Uh, Father, we pray for Mike's opportunity with his um, neighbor, um, that you would uh, grant just further uh, opportunities there. Thank you that that's still an open door um, and that truth is being shared. You are being shared, Lord Jesus, and I pray that you would grant repentance and faith. Lord, we would pray for that. Thank you um, for this morning as we continue to think about your character. Um, help us to think of you rightly. Help us to speak of you rightly. Um, and we just ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so what we've been doing as we've thinking about this whole overarching topic of knowing God, we've talked about uh, a number of different things. In a sense, uh, I mean, we, we did start with God's um, eternality, um, his, uh, his both being creator and sustaining the creation, and then we talked about God as Trinity, and what does that mean? And then we talked about um, we talked about God's love. We talked about God's wrath. We talked about um, all of the. And then we what we did is we jumped to Exodus 34, and then we think about if, as God is proclaiming His own personal name, what is He tying to it? Like all these character qualities, and so we kind of marched through that list in Exodus 34 talking about God's mercy, his compassion, his um, graciousness, his, um, his loyal kindness, um, his, both his forgiving, his impulse to forgive sin, but at the same time, like we talked about last week, his punishment of sin, uh, that he's never, God's always going to punish sin. And uh, so we talked about all of those things, and we came to the end of uh, what is listed in Exodus um, 34. So now what we want to do, and in large measure what we've done is we've kind of looked at, um, we've looked at God's character, we've looked at some of his abilities, if you will, uh, his, you know, his, his ability to create, uh, his relationship to time, we've talked about that, um, but what, what we've done in Exodus 34, in, in some sense it's, it's, it's not so much ability focused as it is God's just character, his character of love, his character of mercy, his character. So we've talked about all of those things, but now what we're going to do is we're going to jump back into that idea of God's abilities. And I'm just kind of using it as a generic framework. Uh, and what we're going to do to start into that is actually to investigate uh, one huge overarching theme uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and it's a character quality of God, uh, an ability of God that really encompasses a lot of his other abilities, and that would be God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. And if you start thinking about God's sovereignty, and we'll talk about what does that mean, um, and we'll give some qualifications for that, uh, but if you think about God's sovereignty, really that's going to encompass God's power, it's going to encompass God's presence, it's going to encompass God's decree or will that he executes in the world, 
And so we're kind of going to be functioning over the next few, couple, a few weeks with that broad heading of God's sovereignty. But what we're going to be looking at is, okay, if we believe God is sovereign, and he is, then what does that actually mean? For him to be that, uh, that also means that he's this, and he's this, and he's this, and he's this. And so that's kind of how we're going to proceed over the next um, few weeks. But what we want to do this morning is just kind of establish some, some, some ground, um, not so much ground rules, but just the basic concept of what do we mean by God's sovereignty, and also some qualifications uh, in terms of what we uh, think about uh, in relation to the Trinity and God's sovereignty, and also in what we think about uh, in relation to uh, what is going on in the fallen world and God's sovereignty. So kind of some basic concepts to get, our, get us started. So what is God's sovereignty? Well, simply put, it's this. God's sovereignty is his lordship and rule over all. That's it. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, you boil that concept down. It entails a number of different things, like we just said. But if you boil the concept down, what do we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty? Well, what does it mean for a king to be sovereign? It means he, uh, he has rule and he has uh, authority over a realm. Uh, and so what are we talking about when we're talking about God's sovereignty? We're talking about his lordship and rule over all. So there's no restriction in God's um, sovereignty. Uh, now to see that basic concept, um, it's, I mean, it's littered through the scripture, but to give you some good key verses, uh, go to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And uh, Psalm 145 is celebrating God as king. And um, we're not going to go through the, the whole uh, psalm, but let's go ahead and look at Psalm 145, verses 10 through 13. I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 145, verses 10 through 13. Through 13, please. Yeah. So verse 13 in particular, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So uh, God's um, kingdom, like God himself, is without beginning, without end. Uh, and it's continuous. Right? So... From eternity past to eternity future, uh, throughout all generations, God has sovereignty. He has dominion, everlasting kingdom. Here's another great passage to just think about that idea even more, Daniel 4. So if you go to Daniel, in large measure, Daniel is all about demonstrating God's sovereignty um, over a number of different things. But in Daniel 4, Daniel 4 is where uh, Nebuchadnezzar thinks very highly of himself. He boasts about how he's done all these things and established his own kingdom, this mighty Babylon that he's created. And uh, then God um, declares that he's going to be, uh, live like an animal for seven years, and that's what happens. Uh, and so then at the end of that whole business, uh, we get this picture from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest 
king of the time, greatest uh, emperor of the time, if you will. And uh, so someone go ahead and read Daniel 4, 34 through um, 35. Okay, so what, what do you see there about God's sovereignty, his dominion? Yes, to what, and how does that articulate it? Like, what are some things that stand out? Yeah, I love that phrase, right? None can stay his hand. There is, uh, there's, if God decides to do it, there's, there's absolutely nothing anyone can do. Uh, so that is absolute sovereignty. Uh, that is absolute dominion. Uh, anything else? In, in what Nebuchadnezzar declares, God put him in that position and then allowed him to be enlightened. Yeah. He opened up his mind and his heart and, and he declared Right. So it's, this whole situation is in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's pretty great. Like he's, 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 uh, he's this great guy. He's got this great dominion. And God said, well, let, let's, 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 uh, let me show you who you really are. And then he absolutely humbles him. Uh, and then at the end of that, uh, he capitulates, right? And uh, he says, uh, no, actually, you, uh, the living God, the one and true and living God, have all sovereignty, absolute sovereignty. None can stay your hand. No one can, can, um, can change what you've ordered or to happen, right? And so that's, that's, that's that picture of God's absolute rule, dominion. Okay, uh, one more. Uh, Psalm 115, going back to the Psalms. And again, we could go to passage upon passage. All I'm trying to show you here is this idea of God's, and it's nothing new to you, but just God's absolute sovereignty, his absolute rule, um, his dominion, his lordship over all, over all. Uh, Psalm 115 Verses 1 through 3. Someone go ahead and read that. Okay, so where do we see God's sovereignty here. Yeah, he does what he wants, right? He does all that he pleases, all that is his good pleasure. Uh, and then, like uh, we said from Daniel, uh, whatever his good pleasure is, and he's going to execute that, uh, a good pleasure that he's designed to execute in time and, uh, and in relation to his creation, no one's going no to stop him, right? So this is the broad concept of God's sovereignty. Now, as soon as we say that, there are, I would say, two um, nuances, things that we need to make sure that we're straight on before we continue with this concept. And one of these is where we go back to what we learned about the Trinity. Okay, so what we're going to do, we just talked about God's sovereignty, 
uh, as a broad concept, but we need to intersect this idea with what we talked about with uh, the Trinity and the roles of the persons, right? So, um, pop quiz, okay? Uh, what are the roles of the persons? This is digging back a few weeks. It's a pretty big question, so I, um, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. Yeah, um, he, he does that in relation to creation. Okay, what, what else? What other, uh, what other roles do you remember from our discussion of the Trinity? Yeah, the Father. Uh, the Father is the initiator of all divine activity, right? He is, uh, we see this, we argued this from uh, especially John, but elsewhere. Uh, and even the notion that uh, most of your references in the New Testament to um, God and generics, so when you see God in your, 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 uh, text there, most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time is talking about the Father. And so, uh, and we'll, we'll go to a few passages here, but uh, we remember that the Father is the initiator of all divine activity. He has the role of ruling and directing even in the eternal life of the Trinity. Now, let's be very, very clear when I say that. This is not a statement when we talk about the roles of the persons in the Trinity. This is not a statement about the one nature of the persons. So, the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God. They share the one being and nature of God. And yet, it, um, if we were to respect what God says about himself in Scripture, it seems clear that the Father is the initiator of all divine activity. The Son responds... Um, so you think about John, all that language about the Father sending the Son into the world, uh, and we thought about, and then we said, well, the Spirit is really kind of the, in a way, the link of communication between the two. The Father communicates love to the Son by the Spirit, and the Son communicates love to the Father by the Spirit, uh, and then the Spirit, um, the Father sends the Spirit, and the Father sends, he hands the, at least in the terms of sending the Spirit to the church. He sends the Spirit to the Son to send to the church. And so we think about all of those, those relationships, but we've got to remember the Father is the initiator of all divine activity. So now think about that, and then what are we talking about? We're talking about God's sovereignty. So at a certain level, when we're talking about God's sovereignty, we're ultimately going to be driven back to the Father's initiation and rule. It is absolutely true that all three persons rule. We can see this in Revelation. And I'll, uh, I'll point you to a, a particular passage where you can kind of see the three working together to rule over creation. But even within the life of the Trinity, the Father has this initiating and directing activity. And so when we're talking about God's sovereignty, yes, we're absolutely going to talk about all three persons. But at a certain level, when we talk about initiation... And rule and direction, we're going to come back to uh, the Father. Okay. Now, to see that, to see that, so this is why uh, if we're going we're to we're going to talk about God's sovereignty in the coming weeks. But but as we go into that, we need to get clear in our minds that the, that relationship of God's sovereignty and in the life of the Trinity. So, 
to reinforce what I've just said and show you that, uh, let's go to a few passages. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is addressing this issue with the Corinthian church uh, about the reality of the resurrection. So, the resurrection of the body. Um, the resurrection of the body. And Paul is saying, hey, this is central to the gospel. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the body, your faith is in vain, uh, etc., 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 etc. So, within that, though, Paul, at a certain point, starts talking about... Um, even the order of resurrections that, are going, that have happened and will happen. But also within this, he ties the idea of Christ's kingship and then the Father's kingship. Which, remember, we're talking about God's sovereignty. We're talking about God's rule and dominion. So um, it intersects with what we're talking about. So 1 Corinthians 15. Um, someone, would someone be willing to read verse 20 through 28? Okay, so what does this say in relation to God's kingdom? Yes, so that is absolutely true. We think uh, that's a quote or an allusion to um, Psalm 110. Uh, Yahweh says to my Lord, talking about the, David's talking about the Messiah, right? He's saying, uh, Yahweh's saying to my Lord, uh, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your footstool. And so that's what Paul is alluding to here. He's talking about Christ. And he's talking about that uh, Christ is to put, uh, it, the Father is putting all things in subjection in creation under Christ's feet. Right? Uh, but then he says something else. He's saying, all right, um, the Father is putting all things under subjection under the Christ's feet, but to what end? to place back under the Father's uh, rule and dominion, right? Uh, it, Paul says, hey, um, when it says that all things are going to be put into subjection, it's actually plain that the one who's doing the subjecting, putting the things under subjection under the Son, that he's accepted. In other words, the Father is accepted from that idea of putting all things under the Son's feet. Uh, and then it ends with, well, what's the end goal? That God, referring to the Father may be all in all. 
Uh, you can even see this in the Lord's Prayer, right? What is, how does it open? How does the Lord's Prayer open? Our Father who art in heaven, name, keep going. Thy kingdom come, the Father's kingdom come, right? Jesus, the Son, is praying that the Father's kingdom ultimately come. So again, as we're talking about God's sovereignty, we're ultimately, yes, the Trinity collectively has sovereignty over creation, but within the Trinity itself, there's a uh, preeminence of the Father uh, in terms of rule and sovereignty and initiatory action. We see that from 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Now, I've got other passages that I can go to, to to show you that. I just want to make sure we're clear on that. Any questions up to this point? Okay, go to Philippians 2. Uh, Philippians 2... Someone go ahead and read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Okay, so what is this passage uh, in relation to the concept of sovereignty? Uh, what does it talk about? Yeah, glory to God the Father is the ultimate aim, right? But even take a step before that, right? This is interesting because it, it, it's kind of like what happened in 1 Corinthians 15. What is the Father doing? giving Jesus the name above every name, which uh, if you, and he says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's a citation from Isaiah 45. And it's very, very clear in Isaiah 45 that the name is Yahweh. And even this idea of Jesus Christ being Lord, kurios is the normal translation uh, uh, in Greek of the divine name Yahweh. So he's saying uh, the father is giving the son in display before all creation, the name Yahweh. He always had that nature but he's displaying that the son has that same nature. Uh, even though this one, he, he had the form of God, he was humiliated to the point of death, now he's highly exalted and has, it has in full display before the creation the name that is above every name, such that every knee will bow, every tongue confess uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is absolute sovereignty. But to the glory of God the Father, right? So again... Uh, they are working in tandem, right? This trinity has uh, dominion over the whole of the universe. But even within the life of the trinity, there's this reflection back to the glory of the Father and the kingship of the Father. Even in terms of planning, uh, we can see uh, Romans 11. Go to Romans 11. So Romans 11 is kind of this big turning... The end of Romans 11 is this big turning point in Romans where... The gospel has been explained, um, you know, God's promises to Israel um, in relation to the Gentiles are being explicated. So it's kind of this whole big kind of, here's God's plan, here's how it's unfolding, 
And then Paul ends in uh, a sort of doxology in Romans 11, 33 through 36. But again, this gives us, uh, it helps us as we think about sovereignty and sovereignty even in relation to the Trinity. So Romans 11, 33 through 36, someone go ahead and read that. Okay, who, who, is, who is being given, who, who is Paul celebrating? He's celebrating God, which means he is celebrating, he's celebrating Yahweh. Who is he, what person is he celebrating? The Father, right? Because usually, and I would argue in this context, right, unless there's other clear indicators in the New Testament that, oh, we're talking about the Son in particular, or something like that, um, which there are, right, John 1, John 1.18, uh, there are, uh, uh, what is it, Tid- uh, there's one in Titus, there's one in Romans earlier, um, that he is specifically thinking about the Father. Uh, and the Father has orchestrated, he's planned all this, he's executed it in relation to the other members of the Trinity, uh, and then what happens? From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, we already talked about the idea that God is going to execute his plan. No one can stop him. And that connects with what Paul is saying here. Uh, no one can fathom all of what God has known, his judgments, his ways. No one's going to, uh, what he is doing is going to come to pass, and it's going to come to pass to the glory of the Father for all eternity. Um, so again, when we think of God's sovereignty... The Trinity as a whole is sovereign over the rest of the universe, but within the life of the Trinity, the Father has this particular role. And then, like I said, you can kind of see how a a snapshot of what is that going to look like, right? What's it going to look like when the the Son uh, is subjected to the Father uh, for uh, the rest of all eternity in the future? Well, you get a snapshot in Revelation 22. So go to Revelation 22. Uh, someone go ahead and read Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Okay, so what do you see 
in relation to God's sovereignty. And this is the, like the final picture. Like everything is done at this point. Um, so this corresponds to what 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about. The, the, the son has been subjected to the father, but in this snapshot, what does it look like? What do you see in relation to God's sovereignty? Yeah, so the throne of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of God, the father, and the lamb, right? So there's this joint rule that is happening. Um, and so, again, we're not, we're not saying that the Trinity doesn't, all three persons don't share in that sovereignty or that rule, uh, but that there's even still that particular rule of the Father. In fact, if you watch through Revelation from beginning to end, what you will see is Jesus talks about in one of his letters to the churches, he says, I sat down on my Father's throne, which would seem to correspond to what Paul is saying in Philippians 2, the name above every name. I sat down on my Father's throne, um, throne uh, when he's re- resurrected and ascended. And then you get this picture in Revelation uh, 19 and 20 where he comes to earth and he reigns over his millennial kingdom. And then uh, that's the thing that 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about. Like the Messiah is going to reign and he's going to subdue every enemy. And then he subjects it back to the Father, which is where we get by the end of where we're at in Revelation 22. It's kind of a merger, right? Where you see uh, God reigning over all the cosmos, the Trinity reigning over all the cosmos, uh, including the heavens and the earth. Because really at this point, uh, and this is clear from Revelation 21, heaven and earth have merged, right? The new heavens and the new earth. Heaven's coming down to earth, which has always been the idea. We don't go away to heaven and then heaven's just this ethereal place. The end goal is that heaven comes down to earth. The presence of God is with uh, man, which is what we see here. So as we think about God's dominion and rule, uh, his, his absolute sovereignty, uh, first thing we need to recognize is ultimately we're going to be in that discussion. We're going back to, in some measure, the rules within the Trinity, and we're driven back to the Father as the initiator of all divine activity. Okay? Now, I have another qualification that we need to talk about in relation to God's sovereignty, but let me pause there, and let me see what questions, clarifications that you, that you need. Because we don't necessarily talk about this all that often, right? Very important, though, that we think about God and his kingdom rightly. Yes, Mike. Yes. 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 Yeah. Because they have one will, right, is the idea that, that in the, the, the one nature, the one being of God, there is one content and purpose of will, right? So the Father... Uh, wills to subject all things to the son and then he wills to subject the son to himself uh first corinthians fifteen twenty eight, and the son is happy to do that because in the son's relational orientation to all of this the son is happy to have all things subjected under him and he's also happy to be subjected to subject all things to the father right so there's complete there is no there's absolutely no division or separation, or distinct uh, uh, within the will, right? It's same content, they're willing the same things, it's just that in accord with their person, uh, what is that? It looks a little bit different from the perspective of each person. Um, 
and so there's there's there there's there's no like there's no like tug of war at all. Absolutely none. Uh, never has been. Never will be. Never is any tug of war within the persons of the Trinity uh, in terms of of will, uh, which is just different than when we think when we hear the word subjection. Like that, Paul uses that word in First Corinthians 15. We think it. We automatically, we automatically think of it negatively. You know, even as we we kind of maybe we're we're trained as Christians to push against that. Oh, so, you know, subjection, submission is not a bad thing. We still our minds go there, because think back even to the original fall. What was the original fall all about? Well, you'll be like God. I don't want to be subjected to God. I want to I want to rule myself. So subjection is negative. But it's not. In the life of the Trinity, it is com- uh, com- uh, complete harmony, complete joy uh, in, uh, in and amongst the uh, relations of the persons. So, yeah, yeah, good, good observation, Mike. Yes, Ned? Yeah, and, and there's what you, what you see is the, the, the person of the Son acting through his human nature, which the human nature, uh, like God has hardwired humans to avoid death, right? And so Jesus, as the divine Son, has this, uh, he is acting as the person of the Son through his human nature, and he is saying, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd rather not go through pain and suffering, but that divine person, uh, because he has received from the Father uh, what, um, what he, uh, uh, he is in complete agreement with the Father on what should happen in terms of uh, the plan of redemption and his death and resurrection, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm submitted to your will. I'm going to follow your will, um, Father. Yes, Mike. Right, and this is. Yeah. So here's where we got to be. This is where it gets. Um, this is where the early church helps us a lot. Okay, uh, the, especially the Creed of Chalcedon, four fifty one. Right? Because what that confesses and what we believe is that the Son... So if you think about the Trinity, there is one nature and three persons. Okay? They, the one being of God, one nature attached to that being. And they are, each of the three persons is equally sharing at the same time that nature. Now when, G, when the Son, the eternal Son, becomes incarnate, he has two natures. So it's actually the inverse of what happens in the Trinity. You've got one person, the Son, acting through two natures. And so what you see in Jesus' human life is that he, um, in a voluntary way, uh, does not access his divine nature. He's still divine. He still has it, absolutely has it. But he lives within the limitations in authenticity of a human nature, but he's still the same person. 
So the person of Jesus is the same as the person of the eternal son. But what we see in, say, places like Gethsemane or even the places like um, we just went through one uh, at, what is that? Uh, it's Matthew, is it 25-1-ish, where Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son. Well, what is he saying? And I mentioned in the sermon at that point, it's like, well, because Jesus, um, he's always, he never gives up his divinity, never for an instant. He still has it. But he lives in authenticity as a human uh, and chooses to restrict himself to a human nature, including uh, lack of knowledge. But that is always independence. He's dependent on the Father for his knowledge as, it, as that one person is working through his human nature. And it's similarly, um, similarly what happened in Gethsemane, right? Here is the same person, the eternal son, who is Jesus, it's the same person, and he is, um, he is operating uh, in submission to the Father uh, as a person, but he's operating within the re- restrictions of his human nature. So... Now, if that's not confusing to you, um, so, uh, yes, Samuel. Um, John yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. What we're saying in relation to God's sovereignty, the Father's sovereignty, uh, the, the Trinity as a whole has sovereignty over the rest of creation. But within the life of the Trinity, the Father has, an initi- has, has a uh, rule, has a direction. Uh, and what we're seeing in these passages that we're talking about, like Gethsemane or um, uh, what was the other one we were just looking at? Uh, uh, Gethsemane, uh, the, um, where the son says, not even the son knows, but the father. We're seeing the persons interact. We're seeing the same triune persons interact. The only difference is, is that Jesus, as the same person that he has always been for all eternity, um, is working through a human nature, dependent on his father, as he has always been, um, and dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. So... Now, why did we go here? Why did I talk about this? Well, because I don't want us to get, uh, when we think about God's sovereignty, it's not like God in abstract. Like, you can't think of God as abstract apart from the persons, right? You, you, you can't think of, like, God just, God neutral. <laughs> We're always thinking about the persons, Right? And so when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're automatically talking about the three persons. We're talking about how they relate to one another, and we're talking about how they interact with the rest of creation. Now, the other... Well, I should pause there. We've we got five minutes, so I should probably save the rest for next time. Um, what other questions um, do you have? Because this is hard stuff. I'm not saying it's not easy. But when we think about God's sovereignty, we're automatically thinking... We, um, we start thinking about the... The, the relations between the persons. 
Yes, Bruce, I forgot about your hand, sorry. Yeah. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yes. And that's the other, that actually segues, I mean, we're not going to have time. Um, uh, well, we, we, we might be able to get started on it. Um, we'll see how far we get. That segues nicely into this other qualification. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about God's absolute rule over all things. Now, you just alluded to Bruce, uh, uh, the, the, this, this kind of idea of um, uh, what's going on in the beginning, even in creation. And God's plan from the beginning was to have his overarching cosmic universal rule and sovereignty displayed on earth through a stewardship ruler, namely Adam and the rest of humankind. And so when we think about, uh, there is a sense in which uh, when we talk about God's sovereignty and God's so uh, rule over all, we're immediately confronted with the reality. It's like, but wait a minute, things aren't functioning as God would have them. We have to say that at a certain level, right? Like God doesn't uh, have a delight in sin, and yet there is sin in the world, right? So we're immediately confronted with the reality of what the scriptures confirm God is sovereign over all. He has rule over all. No one can stay his hand, and yet we are immediately also confronted with, wait a minute, what's going on on earth? And so here's another distinguishing factor when we're talking about God's sovereignty. You've got to distinguish between the reality of God's rule over all and the display of that reality. The reality of God's rule over all and the display of that reality. So the verses we cited above affirm the reality, with no exceptions, of God's universal kingdom and rule over all, including everything on earth. Nothing is outside of his um, scope of sovereignty or rule. And yet, the display of God's universal rule on earth is currently obscured. Why? Because that's what sin was all about. What did sin do? I already alluded to it for earlier with the fall. What did Adam and Eve want to do? They wanted to become their own independent rulers. And so they tried to stage a coup, unsuccessfully, but they tried to. And so sin has contested God's rule, non-successfully, but the display of God's universal rule through the mediatorial kingdom on earth is obscured. And in fact, it is attributed to Satan. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians 4. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 3 through um, 4. Someone go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. Who's the God of this world? 
Satan. The context makes clear in this instance, the God of this world is Satan. Uh, Jesus says, um, you know, as he's going to the cross, right, I'm casting out the ruler of this world. Uh, 1 John 5, 18 through 19, uh, uh, John says, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, wait a minute. God's sovereign over all, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that's why I'm drawing this distinction that uh, God's sovereignty has been contested, right? God's rule has been contested. Not successfully, God really does, in reality, have uh, universal rule over everything, but the full display of that sovereignty is obscured because of sin and Satan and the fallenness of humanity, which is why, back to what Bruce observed back in Revelation, the end goal of the human story, the end goal of history, is the restoration of the original plan in Genesis 1 through 3 of God's universal sovereignty and rule over all, which has always been there and will always be there, but now fully displayed as he designed it through a human and through humans over the whole world. And so there's kind of this tension of we can think about God's kingdom kind of in the sense of, well, where is that kingdom presently manifested on earth? Uh, the mediatorial kingdom through humanity looks really bad right now, but, uh, it, but it's going back. And God's, the reality of God's universal rule. God's the universal rule never, never in question in an ultimate sense. But it has been contested, and the full display of his universal rule uh, we await uh, until the new heavens and the new earth. Does that make uh, questions on that concept? So there's the reality of God's sovereignty, which is always there. And then there's the display of God's full sovereignty, which isn't always there. At least in a surface level. Because we know God is always ruling behind the scenes. Yes, Mike. Because they've been blinded, right? Yeah, and, and, and all we're trying to point out here is that, yeah, we see things like that. Where it's like, wait a minute, people are resisting God. People are, uh, I mean, Satan and his de demons and people are resisting God. So how in the world is it true that God is sovereign? But he is because he's operating even behind the scenes in those, those realities. So the reality of God's sovereignty is there. It's always there, but the display the full display and like on the surface display is, is, has been obscured um, um, by sin. So, we'll talk more about it as we go in the coming weeks. So, uh, but let's go ahead and pray and transition this morning. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the initiator, the architect of plans and rule within the life of the Trinity and in the world. We thank you that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work perfectly harmoniously with one content of will, one purpose of will to, to make everything happen in the world. We, we know that your sovereignty is real. It is true, even when we don't always see it. Uh, but Lord, you do give us glimpses. We do give, see where you uh, topple people like Nebuchadnezzar who are proud, who are arrogant, and, um, and then they have to say, yeah, God rules and no one can stay his hand. We thank you for that reality. Prepare our hearts to sing 
uh, this morning. Prepare our hearts to worship. Uh, may, you, um, may you be honored. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.